Greetings from Western Theological Seminary. I'm Ben Connor, and all of our graduates can sing like Audrey. <laughs> all praise sounds wonderful to God, but I like hers. It sounds good to me. My The sermon is based on Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, but we're going to work our way there. But let's begin with a prayer. Let's pray. Lord, Give us ears to hear and hands to serve and hearts to love. By your spirit, open up this scripture to us and apply to our hearts what you would have us hear and to our wills and minds what you would have us do in response. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're going to start back in Acts. Because what we're looking at is one of the, these letters that was written to the church, and all the letters that are written are occasional. It's not like, uh, you know, the Bible came together, there was some dark candlelit room, and people were pulling together different things and decided what would go best to make this one document of a Bible or something. I mean, these were occasional letters that were in, sp in response to things that were going on. So to set the frame for what we're talking about a little bit, we're going to go back to Acts for a moment. And in Acts, right at the beginning of Acts, you have Jesus saying to the disciples before he departs, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And then Acts sort of plays this out. It's the origin of the church. It's, it's the acts of the apostles, it's also the acts of the Holy Spirit, it's also the acts of the risen Lord. So one of the most exciting moves for me in Acts is what's titled in my Bible, and this is my Bible, and it's a red Bible, and if you'll permit me a dad joke, I think all Bibles should be red. That was for Stephen. That was for him. <laughs> is that the same kind of groan you get? Good, good. I just wanted you guys to feel at home. Uh, and so it's, it's in, in the Bible, it has this little heading. It says the conversion of Cornelius, but there's a lot of conversions that go on. What's happening right there in this, the end of Acts 9 and in Acts 10 is there's this centurion named Cornelius who's a God-fearer. He's praying, and he's, he's trying to honor God with his life, and he's responding to what he knows of God. In fact, in the text, it says, your prayers and your alms ascended as a memorial before God. This is when an angel comes and speaks to Cornelius. The language that's used there is the same language used in Leviticus when a burnt offering is made, and it makes it up to God. In other words, Cornelius already has some sort of relationship with God. Something's going on. He's responding to what he's known. But he's given this, this uh, account. The angel says, look, you need to send for Peter, and Peter's going to come tell you some things. Well, where's Peter? Peter, who had denied Jesus three times, um, had finally come around, and he's, he's, he's trying to figure things out post resurrection of Jesus, and he's staying at the house of someone who's in, called and in, is in, uh, named, according to this text in Acts 9, Simon the Tanner. 
which means he's a tanner, which means he's dealing with dead animals, which means there's hides and things like that, which means that Peter's already starting to push against his Jewishness that he would stay at a tanner's house. And it's interesting, the place he's staying right at this point is in Joppa. Now, if you want to Google search Joppa, the other place you'll find it in the Bible is where Jonah went to try to get a ship to flee God so he wouldn't have to go talk to the Ninevites. Because the Ninevites, who could imagine them belonging to God? And so Peter's there, but Peter's going to have a different response than Jonah has. Whereas Jonah flees, Peter's there and has a vision, and this vision starts to challenge what he thinks this new Christianity is. Because at this point, Christianity is largely just a Jewish sect. It's grown up within Judaism. Its scriptures are the scriptures of Judaism. It's following the way of Jesus, but it's the way of being, you know, a faithful Jew, really. Something happens. He has this vision, and lowered before him are all these animals that are typically seen as unclean. He knows they're unclean. But the voice from heaven says, take and eat. So he's starting to be challenged a little bit more. He's already staying with Simon the Tanner. Now he has this vision that these animals that ceremonially are considered unclean, that in terms of your dietary regulations you're not allowed to have, it's okay. And then he gets this visit, and these folks say, come with us back to Cornelius, who's a centurion. Now this is a, he's he's a Roman, he's a Gentile. And we have to understand how tense relationships are between Jews and Gentiles. It's it's surprising that he would go, perhaps, and receive the hospitality of Cornelius. But we know the story. He goes, and he shares this message, and Cornelius hears it, and then the Holy Spirit comes upon Cornelius. And here's what happens. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter said, Can anyone withhold the water of baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They invited him to stay there several days. Words of this spread to Jerusalem. And the Jerusalem Council, which was sort of guiding and leading the church then, called Peter. And you would think they called Peter to say, this is so exciting. Look at this new thing that God is doing. Indeed, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, it's happening. But what they were calling him Two was to take him to task for accepting the hospitality of a Gentile. You aren't supposed to accept the hospitality of a Gentile. But then Peter explained to them, look, here's what happened. I gave this message. The Holy Spirit came. We baptized them. And then the Jerusalem council came to the same decision that Peter had. How can we deny them baptized? And they are, in fact, now part of the church. And this is one of the most significant things that happened in church history. That becomes a model for every other movement in which we cross boundaries and borders of prejudices 
geographical boundaries, ideological boundaries, and include new voices and new people. The church had to decide then what they were going to do with the Gentile Christians, and they weren't going to make them become Jewish cultural and religious apprentices. They were going to become Gentile Christians who were going to add new intonations, new understandings, new perspectives on what it means to call Jesus Lord. New theology was going to develop. As a result of this right here, you could say, then we had our first four ecumenical councils from which we developed uh, the, the Nicene Creed, which used Greek philosophical categories. This whole, this whole idea was introduced because of this moment right here. So new expressions in theology, new understandings that would have been missed out on if Cornelius and his family had to become Jewish cultural and religious apprentices to be Christians. Yet the tension remains. We see in a later letter that Paul writes that he had a conflict with Peter, that even after this, Peter didn't want to eat with the Gentiles. He, wanted to eat with the, he was worried what the Jews would think if he did that. So these tensions con continued in the church. So there was a kind of inclusion going on, but where is the belonging? Where is the sense that you're really here? Leslie Newbegin, who is a, a missionary and a churchman and a theologian, he says, as the gospel goes out into the world, new treasures are brought into the church, and Christianity in the church must change. In other words, you have to receive these new treasures, and that requires changing. That, re that requires following this pattern when Jew and Gentile had to sit together around a common table. So the passage in Ephesians is dealing with this. This letter to, F to the church in Ephesus, just like the letter to the church in Galatia and the other letters, are written because there's something going on, and these Christians who live in this place need to be strengthened in their Christian witness. And something's getting in the way of that. And the problem, one of the problems in the church in Ephesus, is the inability of Jews and Gentiles to share life together. Of the Jews to look at the Gentiles and to say, you belong. You're included somehow, but to belong you have to be like us. And the answer here is no. In fact, that's not the case. So here's the reading for today. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You don't write something like that unless something's going wrong, right? I mean, that's the situation. And they're trying to live into a unity that exists in the Holy Spirit, not to create one. You are unified. And so he emphasizes even more. There's one body, one spirit. You are called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. You are one if you're in Christ. You belong in this act of baptism, 
you're reminded that you're baptized into Christ and you're connected to each other. You are one. But then I think there's some hope for thinking about belonging that follows this. And, and I, I'm not, not going to read it, but it's when he starts talking about gifts, that everyone is given gifts. And these gifts are to be used for the upbuilding of the community. If you are baptized, you are ordained to ministry. You've been called by God to bear witness to the reality of the kingdom of God. If you've been baptized, if you've been baptized, you are participating in the life of Christ and the life of one another if you've been baptized. If you've been baptized, you've been given gifts of the Spirit for the upbuilding of the community. This is a fact. And how is it going to be played out? And so now I'm going to tell you a bit about how this has worked in my life. And it, has, it wasn't, for me, it wasn't this crossing of a boundary between ethnic differences of Jew and Gentile. For me, it was understanding disability as an unsurprising aspect of being human and moving from thinking about disability ministry as ministry to and for people with disabilities where you tried to include them to ministry by people with disabilities where they fundamentally belong. And it, start, it started for me with uh, my son having a seizure. I was getting ready to go do doctoral work. My son had a seizure. And we took him to everywhere you're supposed to take your son when they have a seizure to find out that he had had a stroke at birth. This was at seven years old. He had this seizure. But he had a stroke at birth. He was missing a third of his brain. We knew he learned differently, and actually that helped me to learn principles of universal design and learning before I knew it was a thing. Because to teach him, you know, I had to have him listen to, listen to things on headphones while he's bouncing on a trampoline and have a system of bells and tic-tacs to get him through assignments. And uh, we did so much more uh, kinesthetic learning, physical sort of things. Well, of course, this is right before I'm going to do doctoral work where I'm reading academic German and, and all these all, all sorts of other things. And the, the, the contrast between my life was pretty stark. And so when I finished my comprehensive exams and moved back to Williamsburg, Virginia, which this is not a Michigan accent, in case you're wondering. When I got here, somebody said, you have a weird accent. And I was like, do I now? I have one. Okay, good. No offense to those of you with Michigan accents. They're beautiful. Um, but I said, there has to be something here uh, for young people. So I was taking Tommy to the pediatric. Uh, we were going to occupational therapy. And there was a woman there with a daughter who, like, she, had thrown, she was trying to throw a birthday party for her, but nobody was coming. And I said, wait, my wife and I coach the swim team in our neighborhood. I know we can get some people to come to this party. Have the party. So we got our minivan at the time. We had two minivans, which is kind of like the gold standard of, of uh, cool parenting. And we drove all around the neighborhood and filled the minivans. And we took everybody to the dollar store and gave them a dollar and said, buy a present. And then we went to the aquatic center where the party was happening. And I saw some amazing things happen. I saw a mother who thought no one cared about her, her child be really excited. And I saw a child who 
Um, the only time she interacted with people was in the halls on the way to her special ed class, feel included and excited. And I saw some students who had never had an interaction with her besides just passing her think about how I can make this a special time for her. And it changed the way that they engaged her in school for the whole rest of the year. And that was the start of a ministry that I just dove into and had no idea what I was doing. And uh, the, the biggest no idea what I was doing was I said, well, let's take a bunch of these folks to camp. So I took seven guys to camp in a, in a minivan. One of them was on the autism spectrum. His name is Xavier. He, experienced, he expresses his joy by big bounds and leaps and movements and things like that. It was a three-and-a-half-hour trip. He was so excited to go with me. He was sitting behind me and shaking my seat the whole time. So excited. His mother, and I did not understand this, when she brought him to the bus, just about had tears in her eyes and took a big, deep breath. And it wasn't until I came home after five days of chasing Xavier around the George Washington National Forest that I realized why. She said, this is the first time that I have woken up on my own terms and made coffee for myself. <laughs> wow, okay. That's still this ministry to mindset, right? Providing respite care, providing unique experiences. One of the people on the trip was a young man named Bo. Bo had had a death in the family. He loved to read books. He loves the show Friends, the TV show Friends. And in fact, he talks to them as if they're there. Like, no, Rachel, no, no. Stop, Ross, that's not funny. You know, all, all this kind of stuff. But He's, and part of it is because he didn't have other friends. And these were friends that, by watching the show over and over and over again, he had this rhythmic pattern that provided him some control in his life and some sort of network of connection, which was really sad. And then he had a death in the family that even made everything that had made his life feel stable feel unstable, so he was on the trip. And then I had kids, you know, another thing that surprised me about this trip was I was given these bags, like uh, lunch, lunch bags and boxes that were filled with medicines and things that had to go with medicines. I had just not thought ahead of that, right? And Xavier, it turns out, loves gummy things, and he robbed all the gummy things out of the medicine containers that fortunately didn't have medicine in them, but were the things that the people needed so the medicines didn't taste so horrible, you know? I mean, it was... It was a huge learning curve, and the biggest learning curve happened when we got there, and after three days, Bo had not eaten. When we went in to eat, he'd just sit there at the food and look at it. He cried a lot. The only thing that calmed him down was warm water. He'd, he'd sit in the shower for half an hour, or he'd go in the hot tub. It's a Young Life camp, so it was like a resort, and they had hot tubs. So he'd sit in the hot tub. And I was like, okay, we got to get him more involved. So I went to the people who were leading this evening meeting. They'd do some songs and some skits and whatnot. I said, would it be possible for one of the songs you do tonight to be the theme song of Friends? Because I think that might get Bo engaged, you know. He said, sure, no problem. I was like, oh, this is awesome. So me, and, and again, showing my inexperience, the one other volunteer leader I brought with me for seven kids um, many of whom were runners and, and whatnot and had some challenges. Uh, we started heading to this room where we we're going to have the meeting, and all of a sudden, Xavier, boom, he takes off. So I say, Brent, go get Xavier. I'll get everybody else safely to the room, and then I'll come help you. So I, so I get everybody to the room, but then I realize, one, two, three, four, where's Bo? 
So I've lost Bo and Xavier in the George Washington National Forest. Um, and I asked some responsible leader with another group, will you please watch my kids while I try to find the two I've lost? And, and I'm like, okay, I know he likes warm things. I know he's sad. I'm going to go back to the dorm. He's probably just there in the shower. So I walked to the shower. He's not there. I was like, well, next shot, hot tub. And after that, it's going to really get difficult. So I walked towards the hot tub. And as I'm walking there, I see a shirt and a shoe and a shoe and a sock, like a little trail leading to the hot tub. Then I see pants. Then I see boxers. True story. And then I see Bo naked in the hot tub. Fortunately, everybody else is at this meeting, so no one's there. Just kind of smiling and going, uh, like, oh, no. Okay. So I find a towel. That was an important find. And I wrap it around Bo, and I get him back to the room, and I'm like, okay, here's, here's what needs to happen now. I need to, I need to deal with this. I'm a parent with a child with a disability. I'm going to use my parenting skills right now. So I use my parenting skills, and they worked about as well as they work at home for this instance. Melissa's the one who takes care of situations like this. That's my wife. I'm really bad at it. I don't have feelings and things like that, so... It was very difficult for me to try to empathize and, and use my parenting skills. And so he's crying. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. I have a Master of Divinity, the most arrogant title of a degree out there. I have a Master of Divinity where I took pastoral care and counseling, and I learned how to be a non-anxious presence. So I tried to be a non-anxious presence, but I was really anxious because this was terrible. You know, he wouldn't stop crying, and now I'm thinking, uh, you know, how, how, he's not eating, what am I going to do? But at this point, I'm a dissertation defense away from having a doctorate where I've considered these things. So I applied this whole skill set of knowledge, and guess how effective it was? Yeah, you've, you've guessed, not very effective at all. So he's crying, and now, you know, I'm about to cry. If, if I were going to cry, that would be a time I would have cried. And it's taken so long, the whole meeting's done by now. Xavier comes, bounces around the room, and bounces out. And about a couple minutes later, the rest of the group comes in. And one of the folks that comes in, uh, I just heard from him yesterday. He stayed with us a week this summer. His name's Craig. Craig loves NASCAR. Craig loves Dale Jr. Dale Jr. If you don't say it like that, you don't love NASCAR. Dale Jr. Craig is a self-proclaimed redneck. He's, he loves it. That, he identifies that way. Craig has difficulty walking. He was in his mother's womb when she was in a car accident, had cerebral palsy. He had to have a dorsal rhizotomy to stop his spasticity. He went through all kinds of therapies to try to make him be able to fit into a world that's not designed for him. He's become an expert life hacker to figure out how to work in this world that's not designed for him. He comes walking in and sees that I'm sitting on the floor next to Bo and things aren't going well. He sits in between us. He puts his arm around Bo. Bo puts his head on Craig and stops crying. All right. He doesn't have any parenting skills. 
He's not a master of theology. He's not a defense away from a doctorate. His IQ, where you'd gauge it, and if that kind of thing were important to you, would be somewhere in the 80s, 70s, 80s. But this is where everything changed for me. No longer was I thinking about a ministry of inclusion. Inclusion meant everybody could be in the room together. Inclusion for this church means there are cutouts, right? Pew cutouts, there are wider doorways, there are push buttons so you can get in, there are different height water fountains, there might be a hearing loop, um, you know, there's accessible bathroom stalls. ADA, the American with Disabilities Act, doesn't apply to churches, but a lot of us say, okay, but we at least got to have that standard, and that's a standard for inclusion, and it means you have to be there. But the ADA can't make you love somebody. The image that's behind me right now, that is Bo and Craig the rest of that week. Obviously, I didn't stop and say, hey, wait, stay right there. Let me go get a camera so I can take a picture. But this was later that week. See, Craig had gifts that the church needed and couldn't be without. I didn't have those gifts. I had skill sets and training, but I was missing something. And if I only use this inclusion paradigm where I'm trying to minister to people with disabilities and give respite to parents, then I would miss the many gifts that they have. And from that point on, the ministry changed. It became about activating their gifts, creating places for belonging. Because we remember Ephesians 4 talks about you have the one baptism. You're the one in the Lord, right? This unity that you have. But then you have to be able to give expression to those gifts. You have to have a place where you can appear and share those gifts. I always hoped that these lessons were learned by this group I was with. They're not, you know, uh, so much of my life is spent in writing and, 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 and processing and analyzing and critiquing. And here are people who work at a very different level. And how am I going to communicate to them belonging. If I were to communicate to you, I would maybe quote something from John Swinton. He's one of my mentors and friends. He says, belonging is not the same thing as being included. To be included, one simply needs to be present somewhere, wherever somewhere might be. Belonging is different. In order to belong, one needs to be missed if one isn't there. In order to belong, to the community of strangers, people need to be missed when they're absent. If they're not missed, they don't belong. And if they don't belong, there's no true community for anyone. And if you want to think about, you know, people with intellectual and developmental disabilities really are strangers in their society. They, we're afraid of them. We can't imagine what life would be like if we were like that. And so we often miss the gifts they have. So we did all kinds of things together to try to create spaces of belonging. And then I moved. I moved here eight years ago to take a position at a seminary. And I would constantly get texts and, and, and pictures. And 
uh, poorly timed FaceTime invitations from my friends. I would get the score of every Virginia Tech sporting event, which was really depressing for a bunch of years there. Um, and then something happened. I told him, well, I told, I told one person, I think I just told Craig that I was going to come visit Williamsburg because my mother was downsizing from a larger house to a smaller house, and I was going to come help her. And he gathered a whole bunch of these folks I used to spend time with, got a house on the James River, inside the house, put up pictures of our times together, had people prepare food, and welcomed me to let me know even though I wasn't there anymore, I still belonged. And that's a picture right there. And if you look on your far left, on your far right, <laughs> red hat is Craig, and right there beside him on the farthest end is Bo. Still good friends today. How do we move from inclusion, where we just create spaces where people can be there together, to belonging, where they're missed if they're not there? because they are part of us. And that's the question that I'll leave us with today.